I just pushed the button, Bill. You'll hear it. Because we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12 now, running a marathon, actually. Let me give you the context. Our writer of Hebrews here, which I believe, and I'll share with this a little more about that in the next little while. I believe it was Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote it anonymously so that the Jews would actually read it. He didn't have a good name with the Jews of his day. But he mentions a whole list of Old Testament heroes of faith. You see, by the time this, this was written, there wasn't really any New Testament scriptures. There were some letters circulating around, but nobody had the New Testament Bible like we do. So everything they preached was from the Old Testament, basically. Everything they taught was interpreted by the Old Testament scriptures. So our author of Hebrews here, in trying to encourage the Hebrews who were under tremendous persecution and suffering because they actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and trying to encourage them, he goes back and he gives us in chapter 11 what's called the heroes of faith, beginning with Abel, going all the way down to the time Christ came. Now, he didn't list them all out. He didn't have time to do that. But he listed particular ones like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and he listed a few uh, judges, and he listed the king, David, the prophet Samuel, etc. But his whole point in doing that was to say, look at these people, how they lived their lives in faith. How they continued trusting God under some of the worst circumstances known to man. And because of that, in chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now that's King James English for we've got all of these people in the past as examples that give us a testimony of how to walk out our lives in faith. Now to give you a little more of an expansion on that and kind of guide you to where I want to go with this, what he's really talking about here are Old Testament examples of people like us who are living a new life, a lifestyle of grace. You see, these old, these old Testament people, they understood the grace of God individually. That is, when the Spirit came on them and they did their thing, they were doing it by the grace of God. And He set us up here by telling us that they were living under an old covenant, an old contract between humanity and God, a covenant of law, rules, and regulations. And you're all familiar with that old covenant, seeing that you've been raised in it and have experienced it yourself. 
The old covenant was simply this. If you behave yourself, God will bless you. If you don't behave yourself, God will curse you. Pretty straightforward, right? That's an old covenant of law. And all these Old Testament people, they lived under that old covenant of the law. But our author here is trying to get us to see that there's been a change. That's why in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, he talks about this better covenant. He talks about a better high priest with better promises. What he's talking about is a better way to live. A better lifestyle that's available to all of us now. A better lifestyle in the new covenant. Now just to rehearse the promises of that new covenant, it's a covenant of grace. It's not a covenant of law. It's a covenant of grace. What do I mean by that? God promises in the new covenant that He will make you behave so that you can get blessed. He promises in the new covenant that you're not going to have anybody telling need of anybody to tell you about him because he's going to be your God, you're going to be his people. He's going to deal directly and personally with you individually. And finally, he says, your sins, your iniquities, all the times you've screwed up. All the ways you've blown it throughout your entire life. He says, I'll remember it no more. And the reason he remembers it no more is because the new person he's made you to be by his grace never has sinned and violated the law of God. Because that new person is just like Jesus. See, Jesus didn't wake up one day and say, Oh, I think I'll quit sinning now. He never did sin. Not sinning now, never will. God made you just like Jesus. Crucifying the old person you were on the cross with Christ. Burying Him once and for all and raising up a brand new person created in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? You are Christ. That's what it means. You're a brand new person. Now that may come to a shock as a shock to some of you. But it's only shocking when you fail to understand the truth of the gospel. The good news. That you're no longer the same person you've always thought you were. No, 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 no. God has made you a brand new new person created in Christ. Now, whether you believe that or not is up to you. Whether you believe what God says is true about you or not, that's up to you. Most of us would like to believe that so God doesn't make it difficult for you. He doesn't make it hard for you. Ask yourself this question. Do I want to believe that that's true about me? If you want to believe that's true about you, 
God will create that faith in you by His Spirit to assure you it's true. Now, that's how you enter into this new lifestyle of grace and truth we're walking in. You see, the author of Hebrews sets us up for that by contrasting that old covenant with the new covenant and saying, listen, you're not under the old covenant. You're under a new covenant. A new covenant of grace. Now let me remind you again that grace is not the same thing as mercy. A lot of people get that confused. Mercy's good. Okay, mercy is when you deserve to be punished. But God withholds his punishment. He's merciful. But that's not grace. Don't confuse it. You're not living in a bunch of mercy. You're living in grace. But what's grace? Grace is a supernatural way that God fulfills His new covenant in you by His Spirit. Grace is God working in you to conform you to the image of Christ. Grace is God making you a brand new person in Christ and filling that new person you are with the Spirit of Christ, giving that new person the mind of Christ, commissioning that new person with the calling of Christ, and giving you the privilege of fulfilling that high calling of God in Christ of loving others like Christ. See, that's what grace is all about. That's a new lifestyle. And by the way, that new lifestyle is a supernatural lifestyle. You can't live that lifestyle just on your own. It doesn't happen. Now, a lot of people like to fake it and they wind up being religious. They wind up judging other people, judging themselves, getting all into all kinds of trouble. Why? Because they're trying to fake a supernatural lifestyle by a list of things they need to do or not do in order to live that lifestyle. No. You enter into a lifestyle of grace by trusting what God says about you is true. You enter into a lifestyle of grace by believing that God has made you a brand new person. You enter into that lifestyle of grace by faith. See, that's what our author has been leading up to all along. That's what he wanted to convince those original Hebrews he was writing to who were suffering. He wanted to convince them that you're living in a new covenant of grace now. And he wanted to show them the glories of that. And so he talked all the way up to this point about believing. Remember back in chapter 1 he said God is speaking to us through His Son. Listen to His voice. In chapter 4 he says today if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart so you can enter into His rest. He is continually calling us to faith. And what God has done for us we couldn't do for ourselves. Why? So that we'll enter into that supernatural lifestyle of grace. To get out of that old lifestyle, legalistic lifestyle of law and 
enter into a new lifestyle of grace. So we get into this new lifestyle of grace, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, by faith we have access into this grace wherein we stand. We get into this new lifestyle of grace every time we trust God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. But what keeps us in this lifestyle? That's what chapter 12 is all about. You enter into a lifestyle of grace, this new miraculous lifestyle in which you become Christ and you're given the calling of Christ to love others like Christ. You enter into this new lifestyle by faith, but what sustains this new lifestyle? It's the very subject of our present chapter, and that is hope. You see, when you believe and the Spirit energizes that faith in you, a miracle takes place. Paul prayed for this miracle, by the way, in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. He said, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that one simple little prayer is amazing. The God of all hope. Who is that? That's your God. That's your Father. Your Heavenly Father. He's the God of all hope. And He's praying that He would fill you with all joy and peace in believing. You see, this is where joy and peace comes from. It comes from believing what God says is true. When you believe what God says is true, you are filled with all joy and peace. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want that every day? I want joy every day. I want peace every day. And it's that joy and peace that comes from believing that causes us to endure that causes us to keep on keeping on. You see, hope, as defined biblically, is a joyful, confident expectation about your future. Whether that future be later this afternoon or 10 years from now. A joyful, confident expectation. You're gonna be okay. You don't have anything to worry about. No matter what's going on in your present, your future looks good. That's hope. And it's that hope that is necessary to sustain us in this new lifestyle of grace and truth. That's why Paul, in his letter to the Romans, addressed this subject of suffering. Because he knew that the one thing that would cause you to doubt the gospel being real for your life, the one thing that would cause you to doubt it more than anything else is your own personal suffering. When things ain't going your way, when things are bad, 
you're going to begin to wonder, does God really love me? Is He really for me? Can I really trust Him? And that's the very thing that was happening to these Hebrews that He's writing to here. They trusted Jesus as their personal Savior. They trusted that He was the Messiah. And immediately, they became social outcasts. Immediately, they were kicked out of the synagogue. Now, you might think, well, that ain't no big deal. Until you realize the synagogue ran your life. The synagogue controlled your job. The synagogue controlled where you lived and how you lived. See, under that Jewish system, being kicked out of the synagogue, becoming an outcast, would cause you to lose your job, lose your money, lose your home, all kinds of things. Never mind the social ridicule you'd go through. And these Hebrews were facing all that. Why? Because they believed that Jesus was who he said he was. They believed that Jesus was in fact the Messiah who was crucified and rose again from the dead on the third day. They believed that. And when they believed that, they were filled with joy and peace in believing. And everything was cool. Everything was going great. Until they began to lose their job, their relationships, their money, their houses. Then it didn't look so good. Then believing that Jesus was the Messiah actually looked threatening. What were they losing? They were losing their hope. They were losing their joy and peace in believing. Now Paul recognized that, not just for the Jews, but also for us Gentiles. He recognized that in Romans when he said, now listen, when you are born again, when you are saved, you are saved by hope. Saved by hope? What does he mean? Let me give you an alternative translation to clarify it. You are saved in the realm of hope. But he explains. But hope that is seen is not hope. Why? You're not going to hope for something you see. But if we, he said, hope for that we see not, if, it, if we don't see it, but we're still hoping, then do we, with patience, wait for it. That word patience there is better translated. Then do we, with endurance, with perseverance, with being able to keep on keeping on. Have a joyful expectation. What's he talking about? He's talking about a subject here that keeps us living in the grace of God when bad things happen. When suffering occurs. See, it's easy to live in the grace of God, trusting God that everything's cool, and actually even being nice to other people and loving other people when you don't have any problems. 
But when you've got problems, all that stuff goes out the window. Oh, why? Because i got problems, that's why. I ain't got time to think about you. I got my own problems. Hmm. What happens to that lifestyle of grace? Without hope, you cannot be sustained. You see, faith is how we get into grace, is the lifestyle. But hope is what sustains us in that lifestyle. So that's what our author is talking about here. When he says, look, you're surrounded by all these wonderful examples and witnesses in the Old Testament of a lifestyle of faith, which in our present age is a lifestyle of grace and truth. So, let us, therefore, let us run with patience the marathon that is set before us. What? Now, when he's talking about racer, he's not talking about a little 100-yard dash. Okay. He's not even talking about a 440-yard sprint. He's talking about a marathon. He's talking about running miles, which takes an extreme amount of stamina over a prolonged period of time. That's how he describes your lifestyle of grace. Now, let me just put it in terms that you can understand. Your lifestyle of grace you enter into, first of all, by faith, when you trust Jesus as your personal Savior. I trusted Jesus as my personal Savior when I was a kid. When I was 11 years old, and though I didn't realize I was entering into this new lifestyle of grace till I was in my mid-30s, I began the marathon at 11 years old. And I've been running that marathon for 62 years. Now you figure out the math. And I'm going to keep running that marathon until I get to the finish line, which is heaven. Y'all see that? That's why it's a marathon. It's your whole life. See, this lifestyle of grace is not an occasional religious thing you do once in a while. It's the way you live your life every day of your entire life. That's the marathon he's talking about. That's the race. He says, let us run with patience, with endurance, the race that is set before us. What's set before you is a lifestyle of grace until you go to heaven. Now, I know it's tough. Believe me. I've been in this marathon for a while now. I know it's not easy. Why is it easy? Well, there's two primary reasons, and again, in Romans 8, Paul tells us about this. Two primary reasons why this lifestyle of grace is running this marathon is not easy. Number one, we live in a sin-cursed world that's falling apart at the seams. Physicists gave it a fancy name. 
They call it the law, the second law of thermodynamics. Did you know that? Hmm? Yeah. What is that law? Things grow old and fall apart. Did you ever have one of those fall apart weeks? You know, in which everything you own falls apart. I have them frequently. Why? Because things grow old and fall apart in this world. Not only things, but people. So that brings us to the second reason. You're living in a physical body which was, is also growing old and falling apart. Now, if you don't realize that, you ain't old enough. But sooner or later, you get old enough to realize your body's falling apart too. Now, those two things makes living a lifestyle of grace and truth in this world, in this present time, really tough. It ain't easy. It's hard to do that. That's why it's supernatural. But there is a day coming that we won't live in this world anymore. We'll live in glory. We live in that new mansion that God has prepared for us. That Jesus is right now building. And there's a day coming which we won't live in these physical bodies anymore, but in a spiritual body fashioned after Jesus' resurrection body that is reserved for us already in the heavenlies. That's coming. But until then, we're going to suffer living in this world. Now, it's a little tough for Americans to realize that suffering, I realize, because we are pampered. Because of our wealth. You might sit there and think, well, I'm not wealthy. King Solomon would give his half his kingdom for your refrigerator. Did you know that? Yeah, you would. See, compared to the rest of the world, even right now, we are filthy rich. So it's hard for us Americans to grasp this idea that we must suffer. In fact, we get the idea that it's our duty to figure out how not to suffer. In fact, there's a religious heresy going around saying that you don't have to suffer if you just believe. That's the name it and claim it group. The blab it and grab it group that's running around trying to avoid suffering. The Bible doesn't avoid suffering. It tells you point blank, you're going to suffer. Jesus told His disciples, in this world you shall have tribulation. What do you think tribulation is? It's not because you haven't got enough money to go to Denny's after church. You're going to suffer. Now suffering is relative, I realize. And I don't mean that you suffer with your relatives. Some of you do. But I mean suffering 
is relative in that your suffering is the worst suffering on earth. So don't be comparing it to other people. It's relative. It's relative to you. I was counseling with a lady years, years ago. I mean, this is like 30 years ago. Who was crying because her husband left her and, you know, she was saying how to, she was worried about the finances and she was almost destitute, you know. And I thought, man, we're going to have to do something, pay the light bill or buy her some groceries or something. And I said, what's, well, what's the real problem? He said, well, my savings account has dropped down to 85000 <laughs> Now, that was 40 years ago. <laughs> and I thought, but to her, she was suffering. Okay? Suffering is relative. So when he says, let us run with patience, with endurance, this marathon race that's set before us, he's talking about your entire life living in lifestyle of grace and truth. That's what he's talking about. Now, he also mentions, now Paul uses this analogy with the Corinthians, this running of the marathon race, etc. But here, he adds two important considerations in running this race before he encourages us to run this marathon, he says, laying aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. There's two necessary preparations to running this marathon of grace and truth throughout your life. Number one, you've got to get rid of the weight. You see, marathon runners don't run in heavy clothing with big boots on, do they? No, it's too heavy. And they certainly don't run carrying weights on their shoulders, right? No. They strip down to only that that is absolutely essential. They lay aside every weight. Well, what does he mean for us spiritually? What does it mean to lay aside every weight? Jesus gives us a little insight into this when he warns his disciples about the Pharisees about the religious folks of his day. He said, now, don't follow their example because they bind up heavy burdens, grievous to be borne. That's weight. And lay them on men's shoulders, but won't move them with one of their fingers. What is he talking about? He's talking about the heavy weight of expectations. The heavy weight of religious expectations in particular. Expectations of what? What you think is expected of you to gain God's approval. What are you going to have to do? What are you going to have to quit doing to get God to bless you? It's a weight that keeps you from running this lifestyle of grace and truth as a marathon. See, it's absurd to think of what you've got to do to get God to bless you when He's already blessed you with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. It's absurd to think of what you've got to do to get God to love you when He loved you so much, He sacrificed His only begotten Son. 
It's absurd to think that way. So the weight he's talking about is really a sin consciousness. And you know what that is. A sin consciousness is when you're always concerned and wrapped up with what is sin or what isn't sin. When you're focused in. Because after all, you want God to bless you, so you want to get rid of all that sin. And you're zeroed in on what you're going to do or not do, what you're going to say or not say, how you're going to perform to get rid of all that sin. That's not your job in the first place. That's God's job. And by the way, He's already done it. Romans 6 is very clear on this. Romans 6 assures you that that old sinful person you were was crucified with Christ and buried with Him. And a brand new person was created in righteousness and true holiness and was raised up. You don't have to be worried about that sin. You don't have to have a sin consciousness. When you're worried about what is sin and what isn't sin, you're not thinking about anybody but yourself. So how can you possibly love somebody else? That's why he, un- he wants us to understand in Romans 6 beyond all questioning that you are in fact dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. Get that sin consciousness out of your head. That is a weight which will slow you down. I used to think early on in my ministry, I used to think, God, if I could just get rid of this sin or that sin, I could be so much more effective in helping people. I could be so much more effective in my ministry. And it bogged me down. And finally, God got through to me. Quit worrying about yourself, you self-centered little sucker. Quit worrying about yourself. I've made you holy and without Blame before me in love. That's what I've already done for you. Now think about other people. Quit trying to look good as a Christian and be one. See, I was so worried about what other people would think about me. You think you're afraid of sin, getting caught in sin. Try being a preacher and getting caught in sin. I know the Lord got through to me. He says, that's not the issue. I've already taken care of your sin problem. I've already done that. What I want you to do is love other people like Christ. That's what I want you to do. Yes, we have a responsibility concerning the sins of our flesh. And what is that responsibility? To agree with God that we've got a nasty flesh that hasn't gotten any better since we were born again. And to let Him forgive and cleanse so that we can get on with why He left us here in the first place, and that is to love other people. Now, our author tells us the other blockade to our marathon is that sin that does so easily beset us. I thought we got rid of sin. What is that sin that does so easily beset us? What is he talking about? Yes, he has reference to this flesh that still is in the same old body we were born again in. 
It has its flesh. That's why this is an internal battle going on. But what is this sin that does so easily beset us? It's sin singular. When you see in the Bible the word sin singular, not sins plural, but sin singular, you can rest assured that it's talking about unbelief. Not believing. That's what plagues all of us living in this body. It's the sin that yet lives in this body, as Paul put it in Romans chapter 7. It's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. What is that? That unbelief. How do you lay aside that unbelief? How do you get rid of that unbelief? Simple. Believe. Believe who God made you to be. And trust His Spirit working in you to do what He wants you to do. You see, faith is not a one-shot deal. When you get into grace, you don't need faith anymore. Why? Because faith is the source of your hope. And what do we need to keep believing in? See, for years I knew that as a Christian I was supposed to walk in faith. I knew I was supposed to be exercising faith, but once I believed that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, then I had this question, well, what else do I believe in now? What else you believe in now is who God has made you to be. And His Spirit telling you what He wants you to do, what He wants you to say, where He wants you to go, what He wants you to quit doing. In other words, His Spirit leading your life on a daily basis. That requires the exercise of faith. And when that faith is exercised, you are filled with peace and joy in believing. That's that hope. And that's what keeps you keeping on no matter what you have to face in this present. Even the sufferings that come our way. And we'll have more to say about that later. So he says, because we have all these witnesses that he's rehearsed with us already, all these examples, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's get rid of those expectations on how we're going to manipulate God. Let's get rid of that unbelief by trusting Him. Looking unto Jesus. These are all an example. That's what a lifestyle of grace and truth looks like. That's the example that Jesus said as He lived that very lifestyle on this earth. That's who we're called to be. We're called to be just like Him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come in Your presence, we thank You. We thank You for the marvelous grace, Father, that You've given to us in Your Son Jesus. I thank You for the privilege that we have to be Christ. The freedom that You've given us in Christ to live out this new lifestyle of grace and truth on a daily basis and the power of your spirit to walk it out, Father, for your honor and your glory. We ask you now for that grace to be abounding in us and that joy and peace to abound in us.
through the power of your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Appreciate you all being here. Have a good week. Run with patience the race that's set before you. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 